All right, welcome to the latest edition of Hear That Podcast. Growling, Paul Andrew Jr., Jay Morrison of The Athletic, here for all your Bengals angst needs. Jay, how are we doing? Doing well. Enjoying the offseason. Everybody's offseason now with the Super Bowl behind us. But, uh, yeah, still plenty of angst for Bengals fans that watched that game. And we talked about it last week on the podcast, just how far away the Bengals feel from, from those two teams. Oh, so far, <laughs> so far. Yeah, I, I, I even, uh, I, I, you would have appreciated my dive in this week in Bengals this week, where I dove into the previous two seasons of uh, all the champions from the last decade. And I did. I read that this morning. Some of the bigger turnarounds, you know, uh, are nowhere near what the Bengals have had. And in fact, every single team except the 2017 Eagles had double-digit wins the previous year, and they won the Super Bowl the next year. So, no hope. Yeah, and your right. chart, I mean, you, you have the, the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> the Eagles were actually 7-9 and nine in back-to-back years. I wonder what the record is for, you know, consecutive losing seasons to get to a Super Bowl or to win a Super Bowl. Yeah, it, that, it doesn't that, feel that like Eagles teams run, make, well, that was rare. Yeah. You don't you don't see it often. Although people point out, you know, back in 1987, the Bengals were really bad, and the next year they turned it around. Yeah, I don't care. Uh, point being, there's actually a lot to take away the Super Bowl, which I do want to get into today, and it's not all bad. Some of it actually involves a little bit of hope. It's mostly there's some general broad brush hope, but hope nonetheless. So I, I don't want, you know, it's the start of the new year. The Bengals are already making moves. They they added uh, Tony Brown's on their team now, right? Alabama corner, officially. Yeah. Officially, he was kind of added a long time ago, but the season had to end to officially get him on there. They added a, a a coach named Colt. That's huge. I was curious. Do you know any about, Colts? Do you know any Colts? I, I don't. I don't know anybody named Colt. Now, now you might. What, what's unique about Colt is he worked for the Colts or he played for the Colts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to, right? Yeah. But I I was trying to figure out now where they add this. I mean, every coach that Zach has added so far, you can kind of look, you draw the lines and you can see where the relationship was formed. And I, I couldn't find one really anywhere with him. And then I remembered, Oh yeah. Colt was a, a uh, special teams player for the Colts when Dan Pitcher was there as an advanced scout. So as far as I can tell, that's the only connection. But um, it, it was kind of an interesting hire. And he, of course, comes in to, to replace Braden Combs, who went to Detroit as a special teams coordinator. Uh, he's going to be Darren Simmons' assistant, special teams guy. Uh, Colt was in the league for a long time. I think he played eight or nine years on special teams. So um, just, just another piece to add to that staff. Uh, it would be interesting to see if, if he gets, you know, the – like Darren really kind of increased Braden's role over the years, and I, I wonder if if this this new guy Colt just steps right in and and does what Braden was doing, or if it's more of a you know not a GA position, but if if they kind of ease him into some of these responsibilities. What's well, big news? <laughs> oh yeah, a man named Colt is here. Uh, we got that. We got Jay. You've got stats. Um, 
that that we'll dive into that are sort of a little bit connected to the Super Bowl uh, and uh, a little bit of a Dan Pitcher's role. Speaking of Dan Pitcher, uh, who is moves up to quarterback coach Alex Van Pelt uh, is now with the Browns as their offensive coordinator. A lot of people have questions about that, why that happened, how that happened, who is Dan Pitcher. You have a great story that's up on the site right now. Talking about Dan Pitcher, his development, his role, why he was so well regarded in the organization, not just by this staff, but by the previous staff. Um, so we, you have about a 10 minute conversation with him that we'll get to later, and we'll talk more about that move uh, a little bit later in the podcast as well. And later in the podcast, the most thing I'm most excited about is the total demoralizing L you took in the Bengals growler bet last week. And I want to talk more about the ridiculousness of the halftime show and how it was completely validating for me and embarrassing for you. So I'm looking forward to that. I can tell because you tweaked me twice. You you had to tweet it, and then you had to put the tweet in this week yes. at Bengals. So yes. I felt like everybody knows I sucked. I wanted our subscribers who don't go on Twitter a lot to also get the same embarrassment for you that I wanted out there. So that was important. Uh, all that to get to. We'll, so we're let's get it let's get it rolling here. Um, the one thing I didn't mention is where we're going to lead off, and that is what everybody's going to be talking about every week between now and April, and that is they're, they're going to take Joe Burrow, right? Like this isn't going to get screwed up. It's, it's the only thing – like people have calmed themselves because uh, there's an understanding. Everybody knows that they want him. Really, what and, – and what's interesting about what transpired on Friday on the Dan Patrick show um, – with Joe Burrow was that the the question turns at a certain point, right? That there's really only way one way this gets screwed up. There's only one way, really. I mean, there's a, of course a chance that the Bengals. I mean, I, I, I guess there's a chance that anybody could trade out or whatever. It's Joe Burrow being like, you know what? I just don't want any part of this, and that's the only thing that Bengals fans are worried is that. The things that they've been screaming and yelling about and embarrassed about with the organization over the last X number of years, depending on how long they've been an angry fan, uh, will be something that deters Joe Burrow from wanting to come here. And he tries to find a way out, a la Eli Manning or something. What we saw on Friday was uh, he said that, sure, he wants to be, of course, he wants to be number one. And... That's all great, but you know he also, of course, wants to go somewhere where they're committed to winning Super Bowls. On its face, a fairly innocuous state in statement. I mean, I don't know why anyone would ever think to say that some team that's going to draft him doesn't want to win a Super Bowl, unless Carson Palmer had said that exact verbatim thing earlier in the week about why he left the Bengals, unless. Jordan Palmer, who has been training quarterbacks between the end of their college careers and the draft for a number of years, now been pretty good at it, trained Baker Mayfield, is now training Joe Burrow, unless TJ Hushmanzada, who in, for the most part pretty beloved by Bengals fans, has been pretty outspoken on Fox Sports, also part of that training group with Joe Burrow. Makes you just start to wonder, did somebody get to him? Is this the great Carson Palmer revenge swing? I don't know, Jay. What do you, what did you, what did you make of all of it? Well, a couple things. I've never met Joe Burr. I've never talked to him, but just from what you've read about him, I don't see him as a guy that would, would not embrace that kind of a challenge. Um, and, and really, there's too much money at stake to do that. I, I just think, 
I don't think there's any way he pulls an Eli or, you know, one of those situations where he says, I'm not going to go there. Um, the other thing is I could see where there might be a little doubt in his mind about the commitment of the Bengals because, and we know this from, from being so close to the team, that the national perspective and what's actually happens are two completely different things. Now, I'm not, I'm not defending the Bengals the way they operate. There, there are some things that probably should change. Uh, that probably we never will, but the outside perspective is always so much more skewed than what's actually going on. And the other thing is, how long has it been since Carson Palmer and TJ Hushmanzada were in that building? I, I do think their perspective from the late 2000s, they're, they're, they have under the Bengals have undergone quite a bit of change with Mike Brown stepping away from a lot of the day-to-day stuff. So I just think that the national perspective isn't really fair. I mean, there's still the, the thing about there out there about, you know, all the arrest and, and the, the jailbird Bengals and all that, and that hasn't been like that forever. But once you get that label, it sticks. And once you get the label being cheap, it sticks. And yeah, they're not aggressive in free agency. They don't do things that other teams do. But I just, I don't see... Joe Burrow getting drafted number one and then saying he's not going to come here. But to play devil's advocate, there is a little, it's, I know apples and oranges, but there is a little precedence there because he didn't see a path to success at Ohio State. And what did he do? He went somewhere else. So if, if he doesn't see a path to success thinking this organization could win, maybe he would decide to do that. But I just, I just can't see it happening. I agree. I mean, I, I would agree with you. I don't see, I don't see this being a thing that happens. It just, when you hear that language, it's the verbatimness of what was out there that week. And I, I wouldn't even care. It's true. And honestly, I don't know that I have a problem with him saying it. If he's coming here, it's his way of trying. I mean, that's his way of before he's even here trying to push some buttons to, Build around him a little bit and be a little aggressive. Say, say that's what you, what's what you want to see. I got no problem with that, to be quite honest with you. Um, you know, you, you should come in if you're going to be that guy and, and demand more of the, of the organization, of your team, of everyone in the building. And, and hell, before you're even there to be kind of laying the groundwork for that, more power to you if that's what the case was. That may not even be the case. There was a lot of prodding by DP who, yeah. Cl- clearly we know how he feels. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you listen to that interview, you listen to the Carson interview. I mean, there's a lot of trying to take shots at the Bengals. It was the cool thing to do last week. It's been the cool thing to do for a long, really for a while now. Uh, is, is when you talk about Joe Burrow is you have to do it in the same breath. You have to take a shot at the Bengals organization. They've earned that two and 14, four straight. Losing seasons, 29-year playoff win drought, all the other stuff that comes with it, you they, they have earned that. But it is the cool thing to do right now. And so everyone wants Joe Burrow to say that. Everyone wants Joe Burrow to do that. And so that's part of it. The problem you saw, you talk about the national perspective. I, the thing is, it, it's coming from the inside a little bit. You, I mean, yes, things have changed since Carson Palmer and TJ Hushmanzada were here. However, they were inside. They know the organization. They know the key players, and those key players are still there. Now, Carson, when when 
DP was knocking the Bengals for lack of talent, pointed out that, you know, Duke Tobin ha- hasn't necessarily been a huge thing of talent. Duke Tobin's done a great job of compiling talent. You know, I mean, people ripping Carson Palmer, Bengals fans, by the way, really kind of, really, it's not kind of, extremely sick of hearing Carson Palmer's mouth at this point. <laughs> it appears. Bengals fans are just so done with Carson Palmer being in front of a microphone, taking shots. But I will say, he did point out that, you know, there was, it hasn't been a lack of talent thing necessarily when you look at some of the, the drafts that Duke Tobin had, particularly when they had the five straight playoff runs. Oh yeah, when they moved on from Carson Palmer and then ripped off five straight playoff appearances. His Bengals fans are very happy to point out on Twitter right now. Um, yeah, it's strange because Bengal fans hate, still hate Carson Palmer for, for quitting the way they see it, you know, retiring basically. But the, the, you, you talk about Bengals fans wanting Carson Palmer to shut up, but what, what Bengals fans most want is change within the organization. And I, I think Carson Palmer, Talking is is that it would be something they would embrace. It would. He's basically saying change needs to happen, and Bengal fans don't want to hear that, but they they do want the change. I just think there's there's so many hard feelings. Carson Palmer could come in and, and say something totally innocuous, and, and Bengal fans would be all up in arms because I just think that he's going to be villain number one um, of this organization, or right up there among the top five. All time, there's just nothing he can do to repair that after what he did at the end of 2010. It is well, really the 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 root of it is is Carson. Don't you screw this up for us? Don't you get to that <laughs> Joe? Don't you get to Joe Burrow? Don't you screw this up? That's that's the root of Bengal right. fan hatred towards Palmer. Like, you know what? We I do I agree with you saying, but can you just not tell him? Right? <laughs> just don't tell him. Just, just let it draft him and get him in the building first before you go telling him how screwed up everything is. It's like that's where Bengals fans are at with this right now. Uh, so at the end of the day, I mean, I'm not going to belabor this thing. The end of the day is, you know, you've got a guy who is probably going to get drafted, who it is not the type of personality that you would expect to come in and make this some type of crazy move. In fact, our good friend Jeremy Rao at Fox 19 had a story uh, going to Athens, talking to some of his family, um, who, you know, he tweeted out that they were kind of annoyed by the notion uh, that Joe would ever do something like that. Um, That doesn't mean... People can be annoyed by those notions all they want to. Uh, That doesn't mean that uh, in three months that things wouldn't change. I don't see that happening, but stay tuned. We'll continue to monitor because in three weeks we'll be talking to Joe Burrow at the Combine in Indianapolis, and that will be sort of the very beginning of this process. And there will be a lot of very direct questions of if you would ever not play for the team that drafted you number one overall. I'm going to ask it until we get a real answer over and over again because I really – that's where it starts, right? Well, how soon do you plan to get to the podium ahead of his interview session? Because you know it's going to be a mob will, You're going to have to stake that out an hour before he's due to speak. That, that's correct. I don't got nothing else to do, Jay. It's the beauty of our game. It's the beauty of our company. <laughs> I, can, I can figure out one thing I need to do and do it. And so uh, if that's where I need to be, then I'll be there bright and early. I'll, I'll bring some Krispy Kreme donuts for everybody. That wants to come stand there with me and wait, and we'll be all right. 
Uh, or maybe I'll bring Holtman's, you know? And maybe Joe will want one, and he'll fall in love with Holt, Holtman's donuts. And he'll be like, you know what? I love Holtman's, and I, it doesn't matter they don't like Skyline because I'm in love with another Cincinnati uh, local business, food business. You should bring everything. Bring Holtman's, bring Graders, bring Montgomery Inn. <laughs> Just be sitting Just there with every – I'll have one of the – you know, like when you send those gift boxes to like your, your out-of-town, you know, college kid or yeah. or whatever. Like I'll just I'll just have – I'll have to deliver one of the like Bengals, like the local Cincinnati gift boxes full of all the local stuff. Some beers, you know, some, some delicious 50 West come coast to coast. I'll just bring him a growler of that, you know. But just, just – there's more than – it's more than just Skyline, all right. And by the way, why everyone when they take their shots at the Bengals have to take a shot at, at the chili? Like, look, it's not for everybody. And if you didn't – Grow up here, you probably don't like it. That's totally fine. Can you can you can you just find something else? Like, why does it always got to be that? It's, it's just it's just annoying. Lazy. I'm very annoyed by all of it right now. It's just easy and it's lazy, and that's sometimes what the the national talking heads do. They just they take the low hanging fruit and, and run with it. I don't and I don't understand why Cincinnati people get so annoyed that other people don't like it like you just said if you don't like it that's fine but I, it's like you know I was never a big soccer fan growing up but if I, there were so many people that loved soccer that were mad at me that I didn't like soccer I never understood that and then now it's the same with Chile it's like if if I like Skyline if someone tells me it's terrible I'm not gonna fight them I'm not gonna argue if you don't like it you don't like it what I, I don't get this because massive it, it debate feels over like, chili. Well, it's it feels like a personal shot at us as a city, right? It's it's not about skyline. It's about it's the way it's said. It's Cincinnati and their trash chili, right? Like it's said <laughs> as like a whole, it, it, and it feels it feels it, it's said by people that have probably never been here, that have never been through over the Rhine or any of the neighborhoods or been any of the you know it's it's and that's I'm not going to waste any more time. So we have a lot to get to. But it just it feel it's it feels like a personal affront to the city as a whole. It's like why has it got to be like that? Why? Why? And this is part of the reason people fans hate the Bengals. It's like it feels like you're casting this shadow of embarrassment on a whole city that is beautiful and growing and 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 so great in so many ways. That's part of it too. But I got to end it there because or else I I will be, I will spend the next forty minutes. On this topic, uh, toughen up, people. Quit being so sensitive. <laughs> uh, let's go to some su- a, a couple Super Bowl takeaways um, that connect to the Bengals, and the one main one um, that I wrote about in Twib, and uh, you know, sort of the headline is, yeah, why the Super Bowl should give Cincinnati fans hope. Uh, you shouldn't have that much hope. We have established that already. Um, but there is some. This is this, it's honestly insane now. How many seasons, years in a row we have seen teams that are viewed as we, we could never win it or it, impossibly historic droughts, right? Look at your four champions across all sports right now. Kansas City Chiefs just won their first title in fifty years. The Washington Nationals just won their first title ever as the Nationals, and they go back. You go back to the Expos days. 
St. Louis Blues, first title ever. Toronto Raptors, first title ever. These are teams that it was like they're never going to win anything. First title ever. And this isn't just the beginning of it. 17 Astros, first title. 16 Cubs. I mean, Lord knows how long we followed that futility. 1908. 2018 Caps in the NHL, first title. The Cavs. The Cavs won. First city title since 64. Think about who the Warriors were before Steph Curry got there. Yeah. 2017, the Eagles, we talked about that. That was their first Super Bowl win. I mean, this is, it is happening over and over and over and over again. Teams, cities that have never won, that everyone thinks you'll never win because these, it's just decades upon decades. Winning. Over and over again. If Cincinnati, if, if the Reds or the Bengals won a title, would their narrative be any different than any of those teams I just mentioned? No. The Bengals more than, more so than the Reds would be. But still, it really wouldn't be. When you look at what all of these teams have been. Pat, like these people view fans, it, it wears on fans because they've been there the whole time. But for players and coaches, especially now, new coaching staffs everywhere, in Reds and Bengals, I mean, this isn't something that affects them. This isn't something that wears on them. This isn't some albatross on them. It was on Marvin Lewis's staff at the end because they went through so many L's. But it's not, and, it's, and these teams are proving it over and over again because these players don't recognize the past. They don't care about the past. They don't even know about the past. So to think that stuff hinders any team from turning around their image or from turning around their ability to get hot and be viewed as cool quickly, I give you the last three years of pro sports over and over again. Yeah, I don't follow the NHL. Close. Well, I don't follow it at all, really. I, I love watching playoff hockey, so I'm not really sure what happened with the Caps in, in St. Louis. But it, like none of the other ones, it, it wasn't like massive changes where you know ownership changed or that type of thing. It was, you know, look at the Astros. They they did a complete teardown and suffered through what was it three straight hundred loss seasons and then built that up that way. The Nationals one is interesting because. That, that could tie into a Bengals mode where the Nationals let a high-priced guy walk and then just built, use that extra money to, to, to build a stronger team with, with Bryce Harper. So I, I don't know. It is really interesting that it's none of these teams, yeah, the Nationals are, are kind of new, but it's not like there's this, been this dearth or this like huge influx of, of expansion teams, and that's why we're getting teams that have never won – Titles before the Eagles have been around forever. The Cubs, you, you know, 08, that have been forever. Uh, the Cavs have been around for a long time. It is really interesting how th- this run has taken off. And yeah, the Reds have a huge history, but it's, you know, people of our age, you, 1990 seems like just not that long ago, but 30 freaking years. I mean, that is a long time. Uh, so that, that would, they, they wouldn't quite fall into that same category as the other teams you're talking about, but it would still be, um, I don't know, a, a significant turnaround for a franchise that hasn't advanced in the playoffs in 25 years and hasn't won a title in 30. 
Absolutely. And, and the, other, the other part of the hope, I think, from the Super Bowl is that, you know, the 49ers built this team that was, it was, it was robotic. I mean, it was a well-oiled machine uh, of football destruction with the scheme from Kyle Shanahan and the running game and and the the pass rushers and Richard Sherman and and all in their line. I mean, all of it. It was it was it was every. You can't have a more powerful group around a pretty good quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. Unproven on that stage, but you know, pretty good. But they limited him. Uh, you know, they worked around his his weaknesses. He's not, not a tier one guy, arguably not a tier two guy, depending on how you view him. And went up with that superpowered machine against Patrick Mahomes, tier one, one A now, you know. And what happened? One A one, man versus the field one, and and that in so many ways is just what today's NFL is, and there's just no way around it. Enter Joe Burrow. I mean, look, we knew this is not news that hope is derived from Joe Burrow and is pretty much the only hope you have. We know that. We've been saying that for a long time. You've been saying that. It's not a secret. But to have it cemented against the machine of the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl is just the latest thing that it all always comes down to the quarterback. It always comes down to the quarterback, and it's always going to come down. This team's future, ability to overcome all the flaws they have organizationally, it can happen. If you get a quarterback that is the man, it can happen. It can overcome so much. It can take everybody to the next level. Andy Reid is a great coach. He's been around for a long time. And he coached all those years. Went to the Super Bowl once. Donovan McNabb and lost. And now he was an overtime away last year and now already hoisted the Lombardi Trophy with two years with Patrick Mahomes. It change, it just changes everything. It just, and it, and that changes the way you're viewed as a franchise and it changes so quickly. Um, it's all going to come down to Joe Burrow being that guy. You hope he can be. And if he can be, the Bengals can be as good and as cool as the Rams and the Seahawks and the 49ers and the Chiefs pretty quickly because it changes everything. This is not a secret, but if you're looking for reasons to derive hope from the Super Bowl, those two things, you know, if Joe Burrow is the man, fit they, they fit the pattern. They fit the mold of everybody that's, that's winning, and particularly in the NFL. Uh, I'm curious, what was the reaction to um... – have you tweeted out the the link, the headline to your this week in Bengals? I, I saw your lead saying, "Wait a minute, I'm not saying, I'm not saying." Yeah, I there were. I mean, there's there's a couple gifts. There's a couple gifts of people rolling their eyes who clearly didn't click on the link yet. So yeah, I, I anticipate that. But yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. It, it can change, and it can change in a hurry if you get that one guy in there. And, and by all accounts, Joe Burrow looks like he could be that kind of guy. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a huge jump from from college to the NFL and Patrick Mahomes had that, that luxury of having a year to kind of learn uh, without play and Joe Burrow's not going to get that. But I, I do, I, for people that think that this is just the, the Bengals are in perpetual hell and it's never going to end. Um, I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I do think 
that even with a, a young, unproven coaching staff, unproven for the most part, and and a, a roster that is has a lot of holes, um, twenty twenty can be noticeably different than twenty nineteen was, and, and twenty twenty one could be a really fun year. Yeah, I think that's I think that's their window. I mean, if you when you get into what windows are, I mean, twenty one to twenty four is your window. I mean, it's it's your mm-hmm. it's Joe Burrow at his best on the rookie deal. Um, if he's the man, right? So it's really, it's about these draft. It's about this draft class. It's about last year's draft class and next year's draft. Those three draft classes and Joe Burrow and whatever p- potential additions you can make in free agency, even if they're second tier guys that play like first tier guys, which is sort of, we know what they shoot for. Um, it, even if it's that stuff, um, re-signing the right guys and seeing a couple guys, you know, make those jumps. That's, that's it. That's, that's what the window looks like. That's the, that's the blueprint for it. That's how it has to work. Now, it's, it's, again, when you start talking about that window, you get more into the, and a lot of it comes back to the AJ Green discussion right now. There's even more reason why you're like, well, you know, who's AJ Green going to be in that window? I mean, you're at the end of his career. Maybe, maybe you know, that's a different debate, but um, that's why the problem. I have a problem. They don't really view it as much that way. They don't see it like that. You know, they just want to win the next year. It's like they want they want to win the next year, and then think of, then think about the next year after that. And and I, I don't, you know, maybe two years ahead. I just I don't think there's enough foresight. You know, I mean, that may be an understatement, but you know, yeah thinking about it that way especially now when you know how this can play out um let's let's move on to some of the other stuff let's talk about the, the damn pitcher move and the alex van pelt move um so last week uh, we saw alex van pelt uh be announced as the offensive coordinator for kevin stefanski in cleveland who a- adding a an interesting staff bill callahan uh, Alex Van Pelt now working together, you know. So some people were, th- you know, there was a thought that that Bill Callahan could come here, work in some special world run game coordinator or something like that with Jim Turner and his son Brian as o- offensive coordinator. That was never a thing. Um, he ends up in division. Alex Van Pelt, your quarterback coach, well respected, moves in division over to Cleveland. Very interesting to see that develop. Um, so. Dan Pitcher moves in next, and a lot of people say, "Well, who, who's Dan Pitcher? Why? Why is this not a loss for the Bengals?" Um, Jay, you did a, a big story on Dan. Give me a little bit of a synopsis, and we'll get you a ten-minute conversation. That we're going to play here for you too with him, but of of kind of a, um, a a nutshell on on why Dan Pitcher is viewed organizationally as as a, you know an easy solution here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just talking to him, he. he He's so bright and so analytical, and and I wrote about this back in training camp when when Zach made Dan his game management specialist, and you know at the time I was thinking, you know, he, oh, he's just going to be another eyes on the replay up in the booth and and letting know Zach whether to challenge the play or not, and and you know maybe when's a good time to call timeout or not. But it was, you know, when I sat down and talked to him last week. You know, and really kind of dove into what this whole role was this year. I mean, it it was I was amazed at what he did. I mean, he every week he watched 
every final two minutes of every game, uh, every final four-minute drive of uh, in the fourth quarter, every final two-minute drive of the fourth quarter, every two-point conversion, every timeout, every, every replay challenge. And he just kind of built like a database of, of what other teams do in these situations. And then he starts running that through his head and, and, and doing a report with Zach about, you know, what would we do if this situation arose? And then when those situations do arise, you're not – thinking of it on the fly you've got something that you've already kind of discussed and, and that hey this is the way we're going to do this and challenges are a little different because they just pop up and you, they're always different but it was just it was just amazing how much th- this this role had never been there before Dan Pitcher had been a assistant receivers coach so he got to, to learn under Bob McNell and and he had been an assistant quarterbacks coach and he got to learn under Alex Van Pelt how those roles are done, but he'd never been a game management specialist before. So Zach kind of gave him a framework of what he wanted to look, what he wanted it to look like, and then he took it and ran with it. And uh, just a, a really impressive, really bright guy. And now the question going forward is what becomes of that position? Because now that he is the main quarterback coach and in charge of the most important guy in the franchise, in Joe Burrow, I don't think they're going to have him in that same role. I think they're going to look for another young, bright guy on staff to kind of jump into that that game management role. But um, it was just really impressive uh, talking to Dan and talking to Zach, too. Um, Zach gave Dan – this is unusual, really, for and he did it for two guys, two assistant position coaches. He did it for Braden Combs, and he did it for Dan Pitcher every Friday morning at the team meeting. Not offense, not special. The entire team, all the coaches, all the players are in there. And that those, each of those guys got 10 minutes up in front of the group to kind of present what they had been working on that week. And that's huge for a coach's development. And, and, and Dan Pitcher said that that time was worth its weight in gold in, in terms of making him ready to be a position coach. So it's just the, the belief Zach had in, in him and then the execution that, that Dan brought to the job is the reason that it, they didn't even – I mean, they, they had this move ready to go as soon as Alex was interviewing in, in Cleveland. They, they, there was no thought given to, to looking outside for another quarterback coach. I, I specifically remember Marvin Lewis raving to me about Dan Pitcher uh, back when he was here. I mean, that was, you know, they really thought he was a rising star and viewed him in that mold of one of the next great young coaches that – they had spent time developing here. The Braden Combs, uh, Kyle Kasky, a, a lot of guys that they brought up and that they gave, it, it, you know, elevated jobs like this. Whether um, you know you get into, there's a lot of young guys like this that they would have in in those bo- in those quality control type of roles for a number of years. And you know, he raved and raved about Dan Pitcher. Also, Dan Pitcher worked with James Urban, who is maybe who I. Uh, a coach that I respect as much as any that has come through um, Cincinnati and has done been a big part of working wonders with Lamar Jackson as the quarterback's coach in Baltimore the last couple of years. Um, he worked with James Urban as a receivers coach, and he's worked, he worked with Van Pelt. And also you've got Zach Taylor and Brian Callahan who are quarterbacks, former quarterbacks coaches. I mean, you, you, there's just so much support here for that position and and it was just it really made it a no brainer. I mean that this was the reason why you know when they knew when they when when Alex Van Pelt re upped. So Alex Van Pelt re upped 
when Zach Taylor was hired because he was one of the Mobile 7. His contract, in theory, would have been up this year. Uh, but he did a, an extension with the, the caveat that he would not block him to be an offensive coordinator. And Zach agreed to that because he had known and heard enough about Dan Pitcher to know the, how much respect there was for the job that he could do. So that's what made this easy in that way. I mean, you like Alex Van Pelt being here, and, and I think there's something to that. I also think there's something to Joe Burrow is a next generation younger, right? Mm-hmm. So don't you maybe I think you have a better chance connecting with a next generation younger coach. You know, is is Dan Pitcher? This is unfair to say, but I, I think that you know when you look at ages and you look at where guys had been historically. Dan Pitcher had the same path as Joe Brady, okay? Like, he was a quality control guy in New Orleans that everybody raved about there. Went to LSU, worked with Joe Burrow, and things went bananas, right? Dan Pitcher is the same thing here, older than Joe Brady, and had been a quality control guy that was well-respected here by multiple staffs. To think that he wouldn't be ready for a quarterback's coach gig I think is insane, and that it wouldn't necessarily be a better fit to have a 33-year-old guy with 24-year-old Joe Burrow instead of an older guy like Alex Van Pelt, hey, I, I, I like that. I like having a younger guy in the room personally, and I think I think Dan's a star in the making, and I think Joe Bur- him and Joe Burrow could be uh, a special connection. Yeah, that's a great point about the age, and I asked both Dan, Matt, and Zach, and they're they're both still so – because, you know, I, I framed it as how beneficial is it to have a, you know, a, a young coach – first year as a, a full-time position or as a head position coach and then a first-year player and letting those two kind of grow together and they're they're they both kind of you know kind of brushed it aside a little bit because nobody they're I think they're just so gun shy about saying anything about Joe Burrow and I even framed the question you'll hear it on the conversation I have with Dan I even framed it you know that obviously nothing's been decided yet but if you do take Joe Burrow and and he still kind of said it you know if any, whoever I'm coaching in that room and kind of framed it that way. But I, I think that is a great point that that is a huge advantage if you have those two come in, two guys with bright futures that are young and just kind of let them grow and, and develop a, a friendship and a working relationship together. All right, that's some of the background and some of our thoughts on it, but I want you to hear from Dan Pitcher. So here is uh, 10 minutes of uh, conversation that Jay had with uh, Dan Pitcher last week. What would you learn from Alex? So he's kind of regarded as one of the best around. Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me, you know, with Alex is just kind of how he just built an environment in that room um, where where guys felt comfortable, um, you know, to be themselves. And, you know, there's, there's a fine line where you can do that and then still hold guys to a high standard, which he does a really good job of, you know. So it's – I just think he's – uh, he's a, as authentic a person as they come, um, and you know, so so just kind of seeing seeing how he was able to to really kind of bring that group together, bring that room together, and then really outside of that room too, just you know, talk about a guy that really kind of universally just liked and respected, and um, and he did it just by being himself, and so you know, I'll definitely take that as a lesson. Was Alex in the booth, or was he on the sideline? Uh, sideline this year. Okay. Booth last year. Okay. Um, you know, so I, I was right next to him for games last year, mm-hmm. and then this year he was down there um, on the sideline. So have you thought about what you'll do? Uh, you know, I, we'll, we'll have to kind of see how that plays out. That'll be Zach's decision, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how he wants to divvy up the, you know, divisional labor on game day. And, you know, obviously um, 
I think it's important. You know, there's a lot of QB guys, obviously, on this yeah. on the staff, and it'll just be you know however Zach kind of sees fit. Is he has he mentioned? I mean, does he want you to continue in that role of kind of like the game strategist? We haven't type? got that far yet. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we'll have to see kind of yeah. how it plays out. Yeah. How did you feel this year? Because I know Brian Callahan spoke glowingly saying yeah. that the, the, the year didn't go the way you guys wanted it to, but you, nothing went wrong in terms of. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, there's always – you look back and there's always things that you kind of second-guess and you say, hey, you know, maybe, um, you know, had we done this, maybe, you know, here or there. But overall, uh, I felt like we were we were prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, um, you know, between myself and, and Sam Francis, you know, our analytics guy who really helped me big time um, just throughout the week, just kind of making sure that we were – watching everything we needed to watch to you know just so that when it came to Sunday you're acting on second nature and you're not second guessing yourself um you know so I've, I always felt prepared I think we did uh you know a good job um and it's something that I'll, I'll always take that experience with me you know how, however my role is going to shift going forward you know I think that stuff is incredibly valuable um and I'm I'm grateful that I had a chance to, to do that this year. How much did you watch? Was it self-scouting kind of stuff, or did you watch other teams around the league? Their, oh, we'd, their study the, we'd study the league, yeah. So, you know, we kind of broke it up into, you know, just different, uh, you know, end-of-half ge- end situations, mm-hmm. two-minute, end-of-game, two-minute, end-of-game, four-minute challenges, two-point conversions, fourth downs, and you just kind of break it up throughout your week, and you just study basically the decision-making processes of all the other teams around the league and you try to put yourself in their shoes and you say okay if we were in this position what would we do and why would we do it um and when you do that you're able to develop i think some consistent rules Mm -hmm. to operate by on game day um and then just try to constantly have in your mind you know what all right what's what's the current situation what are we what, what are we thinking and then get that communicated ahead of time try to keep everybody on the same page is it like chess so to speak where you always thinking a couple moves ahead you know if this happens, yeah it, yeah no yeah i think at certain points in the game it is yeah uh at other points it's it's a very immediate thing that happens that requires your attention right now mm-hmm. and you know challenges for instance yeah. you know they're not that just pops up yeah um, but then when you're talking about end of half end of game stuff yeah you know that's you start thinking about those things before they get there and then you just try to do your best in the moment to to, to give the you know the, the, the right advice to Zach and, and, and Brian. I, I know one everybody points that one that stuck out to me was the Seattle game, the way you guys aggressively used the, the timeouts right before halftime. It was kind of a, a different from what we'd seen here in the past. Were, were there other games where you, you thought you guys were, yeah, were um, aggressive or made really good decisions that panned out? You know, I think um, I think if you look to, yeah, there's some other ones to me. A couple that stand out would be the uh, end of the half in both Baltimore games. Obviously, neither game turned out the way we'd like, mm-hmm. but I think the way we managed the clock in both of those instances uh, really limited their opportunity to come back down and score at the end of the half. If you'll remember the, the game here, we kind of took the clock all the way down and and banged a timeout with, I think it was 35 seconds, and then Finley on the next play threw the touchdown to Eif. And, okay. you know, so just stuff like that where you just, in the moment, you just want to, you're down there and you're excited, hey, let's score. Well, hold on a second. Let's just make sure that we've, you know, calculated, 
you know, we have enough timeouts and we have, we only have so many downs remaining. So let's make sure we take as much time off the clock as we can before, um, you know, so they can't come back down on the, when you're playing an offense as explosive as they were, you just, you want to, you want to limit the opportunities, uh, you know, limit the exposure of your defense to it, to an offense like that. So that's just one example, um, of kind of how that played out this year. One I remember too was because you guys were so aggressive on fourth down, and then there was, I think it was fourth and three, maybe fourth and four against the Jets right at midfield, and you guys elected to punt there, and then you end up getting a three and out, getting the ball back, and scoring a touchdown. How much of the fourth down decisions are are going by analytics? What's smart here, and how much is feel of the game, the weather? I think played into that. Yeah, um, well, all of it plays in. Um, and then you, in a game like that, where where we're ahead, where we're ahead, you know, you, you don't have to necessarily take as many risks if you find yourself in that situation. And I think Kevin was punting the hell out of the ball that game. He was having a great game. Our defense was playing well, so you factor in all those things, mm-hmm. um, and you build it in such a way that the right decision isn't always the aggressive decision, mm-hmm. um, and. And, and, and really the role that I had is just to kind of communicate that to Zach and and these are the factors and he's thinking of all that too I mean he's, yeah. he's a smart guy and so is Brian and I mean, so it's not like I'm not I'm not giving any you know brand new information that no one's ever thought of before but it just kind of helps to streamline it a little bit and then you know in that instance we made the decision not to and it worked out how did you because you know you You've been assistant quarterbacks coach, assistant wide receivers coach. You had guys that you kind of like learned under, so sure. to speak. But but this was a new position. How, how did you go about preparing for it and studying for it and like laying out a, a framework of how you wanted to do it? Yeah, um, you know, Zach had had some pretty specific things in mind. Um, you know, just based on where he's been in the past, that he kind of envisioned the role. Um, so he he did a really good job for me of just kind of laying out, hey, this is what I see this being. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then allowing me the freedom to kind of tinker with it here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, I've gotten to know some some guys around the league um, that kind of are in similar roles, and I and I, you know, relied on them just for, you know, not for anything proprietary, but just for, hey, you know, what, how do you go about this? You know, yeah. what's your week look like? What are, what are the things that I should make sure I'm doing here to to, the, to so that I know I'm going to be prepared? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a blend of things. Okay. Um, yeah, well, the, the quarterback position, I mean, that, I know it's kind of weird because everybody assumes she has to take a show for her, but it's not, nothing's been assigned yet, but I mean, how exciting would that be to, to have, you know, your first year as a quarterback coach also be a rookie's first year and you guys kind of grow together? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, outside of whoever's in that room from a player perspective and whether we do or we don't select one, you know, Early, mid, late, whatever it is, um, I'm just incredibly excited to 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 have this opportunity mm-hmm. to to be in that room and to try to you know do my part. To me, it's all at that position. It's it's about uh, being obsessively prepared, um, and then just fostering just like a relentless competitiveness. So you get those two elements. Um, and whoever's in there, uh, if I can do my best to, to grow that with whoever it is, I think we'll be in good shape. And um, you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging. 
I'm grateful that I have guys to lean on mm-hmm. in the in the way of Brian and Zach, who have been quarterback coaches for multiple NFL teams. They'll be huge for me, and um, you know it'll be a it'll be a group effort. There's no doubt about that, um, and I'm just I'm excited. All right, great stuff with Dan. And again, if you want to read more about Dan's background. Um, and the, the the specific instances of the game management. Well, I, th- I found that stuff fascinating. Um, make sure you check out Jay's story up on the site uh, right now. Um, you also have some stats that are kind of tangentially connected to that. What do you got? Yeah, well, watching the Super Bowl at the end of the first half when the 49ers get a stop, um, I think there was 149 left, and the Chiefs were going to have to punt the ball and Kyle Shanahan doesn't call timeout. And I was like, what, why in the world? And then they show John Lynch in the booth signaling for timeout. Everybody's questioning why he wouldn't call timeout. And that was first thing that went through my mind was, I wonder what Dan Pitcher would, would think of this situation, what would say, who, what he would say about this situation. Now, if, if I were to call him up on Monday and ask him, I'm sure he, you know, he, he wouldn't want to criticize Kyle Shanahan, but obviously, I was thinking that's a situation where you need to call the timeout. And so I went back and I looked. And this was uh, this was a good portion of my Monday because this wasn't one of those like database things where you can just kind of put in the parameters and, and get the results. Um, I did put in, I looked for every time a team punted between two minutes and one minute in the second quarter this year. And uh, there were 85 instances now, oh my. only twenty four. Only twenty four of those times, the clock happened. Well, I had to look up all eighty five, but only twenty four of the times was the clock actually running, where that made it a decision: do we call a timeout or do we not call a timeout? And twenty two of the twenty four times, the the coaches called a timeout to try to give themselves a better chance to have more time, get the ball back, and go down and get points um, before the before the end of the half. Uh, the only two times that it didn't, um, Adam Gase didn't do it in a Monday night game against Cleveland, um, and that, that still ended up biting them because the Jets got the ball back with 57 seconds left. Uh, they went three and out. Cleveland started using their timeouts, and Cleveland ended up getting the points um, before the half. And then the only other time, uh, Bill Belichick, of all people, uh, did not do it. And what was curious about that, that was week 17 against Miami. And they could have, he could have called a timeout with 151 left with Miami punting from their own 20. And he didn't. He let the clock go. Um, I don't know if people will remember this or not, but the previous week, the Patriots were playing Buffalo and it, it, it went the other way. Buffalo did it. Or the, the New England called the timeout, screwed it up, went four and out, and Buffalo got the ball back, and Buffalo actually scored a touchdown right at the end of the first half. So I wonder if that was still kind of playing in Belichick's mind that, you know, we could get burned here. Um, for the Bengals, it happened once. Uh, week 15 against New England, they, uh, they sacked Brady on third down, the clock was running, so Zach called a timeout with 1.45 left to try to give him a chance to get some points before the half, and uh, Alex Erickson muffed the punt. The Patriots recovered it and uh, got a field goal out of it. So that's not the Bengals season. Them, yes, exactly. It kind of burned him, but it, it was the right call. It just if 
and Alex Erickson's pretty sure-handed. It was just kind of a fluky thing. Uh, there were three times when the Bengals were on the other side of it. Uh, all three times, um, Cleveland called a timeout to try to get a score in Week 17. Um, the Rams did it, if people remember the London game. The Rams called a timeout with 114 left, and uh, Kevin Huber pinned them at the two. And the Rams run like six or seven plays, only got out to the 38, and the, the time ran out. And then the other time it happened, Buffalo called a, a timeout with 135 left before half. Um, got the ball back, drove down, and then actually missed a field goal against the Bengals in week three. But yeah, 22 out of 24 times, a coach is going to call a timeout there. It just it stunned me that, that Kyle Shanahan wouldn't do that in the, in the Super Bowl, especially knowing that you're getting the ball first in the second half where you can really kind of not bury a team, but you can, you can build a two score lead there. If you can get a score right before half and then get the ball coming out in the, in the third quarter, um, that one, that, that's the reason that was a, a long endeavor to look up all those plays, but that I is. really wanted to, cause it, it surprised me that much that, that Shanahan passed on the time out there. But, and let me tell you why I don't mind the decision. It's, it's conservative, but I will say this. You're not, it's different. It is partially different when you're playing Kansas City for this reason. Kansas City with three timeouts. You don't know. I mean, your assumption is probably you're going to assume you're going to get pinned inside the 10, maybe even inside the five. If you're inside the five and you're trying to get out, dig out from under there and they use their timeouts and you have to punt to them, you've given them points. You've just given them the points. You just gave Kansas City three points. And you also opened up the opportunity for Lord knows what down there. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, doing it, getting it, I, my thing is more that they weren't more aggressive once they did get the ball at the 20. You know, coming out and running the ball and, and all that. I mean, I would have been more aggressive and done a two-minute drill at that point. I don't fault him as much for not taking the timeouts because also San Francisco then had three timeouts to use, mm-hmm. and you figure they that, that that's a, an eternity if you have a minute and three timeouts to try to go once you're on the twenty. They didn't, you know, hell, I mean, if it wasn't for the OPI against Kittle, they would have gotten points out of it, and the narrative is very different. Um, but I, I just I, I get it because you don't want to swing the momentum if you're comfortable at ten to ten. In before you know if they're going to pin you, you know, to do that. And, and you figure a, a minute and three timeouts, if we want to go for this, we can go for it. The surprise, the conservative nature, where I have the problem, was that they didn't really go for it. It was like Marvin was in charge. Once, yes. once, once they, once they took it over, they didn't really go for it. They sort of half went for it. And like I said, they, they nearly almost got it anyway. Um, anyway, very, um, that's some, that's some in-depth research. 22 out of 24. But then whenever it's Belichick, everyone's like, well, I don't know. Maybe then, maybe that's the future. Maybe it's, I, but you know, it was, the one thing I do hate recently is, burned Belichick. Well, the one thing that I do hate is that whenever someone makes a decision on the conservative versus the aggressive side in one of those types of situations, everyone immediately screams they're idiots, right? Like, ah, got to be aggressive. Sometimes the more conservative play is the right one. You talked about that in your story with Dan. About the Jets game. Mm-hmm. When, yeah, normally they would be aggressive when it was like they were on the 42 or something. Uh, normally it would be an aggressive spot. Normally they would go for it. But in the circumstances where the defense was playing so well and the way the wind was going and the way Kevin Huber had been so good, at that point they wanted to go to try to pin him. And what happened? They pinned him. They got a safety. It was one of the biggest plays in the game. 
and the fact that they were deep down in there was really part of their demise. Sometimes that is the right play, the conservative play, if the situations are right. And and it's like – but if it's not aggressive, everyone thinks it's stupid because that's that's the, you know that's the trend, right? And teams that are really aggressive, which the Bengals were, can make conservative plays. And I remember when that happened. Everyone, the Bengals are so dumb. You know what they're doing, right? It's like <laughs> because if it's not aggressive, it's stupid. And sometimes that's not necessarily the case. And I think Shanahan's a bit victimized by that. Again, my problem was more when they actually started running plays, not being more aggressive then. Of course, then you're letting Jimmy G throw the ball, and you know what you're worried about there. That was the thing I was because I didn't really view it as a like calling a timeout there. I, I didn't view view that as being an aggressive move. I just it just felt like a a common sense move. Uh, and, and even if you do get penned, the running game is so good. You got to figure that you're going to be able to blast it out of there, and all you got to do is get one first down. Then you don't have to worry about Kansas City, you know, getting the ball back. Um, if and then maybe you hit a big play, and then all of a sudden you are rolling, and instead. They got it with what a minute instead of 147 or what they would have had. So, and then yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking too when they got the ball and they 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 were so just I don't know mamby pamby they, they the the little run they ran they that caused uh, Kansas City to call a timeout. They're like, hey, we are going to get this ball back because San Francisco is not even trying to move the ball and. That's what Marvin would do. He would he would run a ball up the gut and see what they would get, and then try a maybe try a screen, and then they finally get on the second or third play. They they finally get a decent gain. It's oh crap, we've already wasted forty seconds. So then you're just out of time, and it's not going for it, and it's not not going for it. You're just in that middle t- middle ground all the time. Yeah. Um. Let's um. Let's die. I I, I want to talk about the Hall of Fame. I know we're, we're getting a little long, but. Um, I do want to talk about the Hall of Fame uh, vote uh, that went down this weekend. And no no Bengals were up, of course, because they never are. Um, but, uh, again, it's, I, I have real problems with what's happening with the Hall of Fame right now. Um, and I think I really – because this could be a long rant. I'm not – I'm going to purposely keep it small. And uh, But, I mean, with what's happening right now – where with the same selectors every single year, you end up with this hierarchy and no new opinions. And so guys that are everyone, then this group has decided are out, are out for good. And you don't, you know, if there's not, why there can't be new people that hop in and rotate through, you can have the same, if there's 50 there's 50 selectors you could have 20 to 25 people that are consistent or the same and then have another 20 to 25 that rotate and every year there's a new person in voting and and, and you can get new opinions and you can get new guys that get seen in different ways um because you know everyone in there is so let's be honest old dudes okay and let's be honest Old white dudes are the voters in the Hall of Fame right now. It's what it is. And it's fine. That's what it is. It's what it is. For the most part, that's what it is. And you don't have any younger people, any any different people, any div- really no real diversity on the committee to bring different opinions. And I feel like it ends in things where certain guys get left out and overlooked. And from a Bengals perspective – 
I, I compared I'm not, I've never been a huge I thought Chad was going to get in the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I just a lot there's a lot of receivers from his era that are very good. And you put his numbers next to Isaac Bruce, who got in. I'm actually I, I would put I, I've been saying for a while I thought Torrey Holt was the better candidate from those Rams teams. Put his numbers next to Isaac Bruce. Isaac Bruce, all pros, zero. Chad, two. Pro Bowls for Isaac Bruce, four. Chad, six. How many years did they rank in the top five in receiving yards per game? Both three. How many years did they rank in the top five in receptions? Isaac Bruce, one. Chad, two. How many years were they ranked in the top five in receiving touchdowns? Both once. We know the run that Chad had from 03 to 06, you know, was dominant, best in the league. You know, that, it's a four-year run. We, we don't even have a single all-pro from Isaac Bruce. Now, longevity, 15,208 yards versus 11,000 for Chad. It, it, do, do you give value to longevity to a guy who had a 16-year career versus an 11-year career for Chad? Is that the difference in Hall of Fame? Now, is it the ring? He was on a great show on turf and was a big part of that and won a ring. And Chad obviously never won a ring. And that clearly is a big part of it. You know, the the current all these these fifty people that are currently in there, they love guys with rings. They love guys that made it to the Super Bowl because it's the only time they really saw them. In the new information age, you see more games, you know more about players, and I think you get a little bit of that is is lost. And why so many guys, so many good players from great teams are in the hall and so many great players from good teams aren't because they don't see enough of those guys. And this is a perfect, I mean, look at when you put this side by side, do you want a guy who had a greater prime or a guy who happened to play 16 years? I, I look at that stuff and I, and I wonder, and Willie Anderson, I've been making his case forever. I, you know, it's the same type of thing. It's, people never saw Willie Anderson play. Corey Dillon, Edron James is a great all-around player. Edron James should get him. Corey Dillon's numbers are closer to him than you think. But people don't even talk about Corey Dillon. And, and he even has a ring. And that type of stuff, I just feel like you need new blood in there to give new conversation. And I don't see that happening right now. And this Isaac Bruce thing is the perfect example of it. I mean, when you, when you really put that stuff side by side. Why does it have to be 50? I mean, well, it's just what it is. I mean, it's just what it's, it's, what uh, yeah. it's been. Because it's all I mean, one meeting. It's, so many it's guys. One meet, well, it's one meeting though, and, and 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 they stand up and they you present a guy, you know, and all, there's a very much a ritual, and that's fine. Like the Hall of Fame is is the organization that it is, and that's how they choose to do it. Um, but I do think you lose something when you have the same people in there every year. I think you lose something. You lose new opinions coming in that view things differently. You have situations like Terrell Owens happen. Where the group think has decided that this is the way it is, and I, don't, and I hate that. You know, I, I it feels like there needs to be new blood in that room, and I, I wish I wish that there I wish that there were. Um, you know, but then I say that, and I hated everything about the blue ribbon panel. So, you know, it's all <laughs> messed up. I just I'm just I'm really me and Hall of Fames just are really in a bad place right now. That's all. Yeah, it's just I mean those guys. Their opinions are pretty much set in stone. You're not going to change those guys' opinions, and the careers are over, so nothing's. There's no new information that's going to come out. So it does, and then it just becomes kind of a waiting game. Well, this guy got in, so now let's move on to the next. Just like what you, Corey Dillon. Now that Edron James is in, then they move on 
to the next two best guys that are that are eligible, and then it, it comes down. It's going to be the Fred Taylor versus Corey Dillon talk. Um, I just I don't know. I I've never sat in one of those meetings. I can only imagine how grueling it is, and I do appreciate those guys putting in the work Absolutely. year after year. But I agree, there there needs to be some some new blood in there. Either make it a rotating thing or expand it. That you'll have have that presentation at another time, maybe not the day before the Super Bowl, and, and open it up to to where more people can go and, and and give people a vote that haven't covered the league for twenty years. A guy that's covered it for five or six, but has seen sixteen games a year and. I mean, yeah, that he he may not have as good of a, a knowledge of the guys that are up for it because they haven't played in five plus years. But it just it feels like new blood is needed, or nothing's going to change. It's just going to keep following this path where you just start ticking guys off. And the thing that bugs me too about the the ring in baseball, I, I get it. It's a little different in football. How many times every player, every coach t- talks about it's the ultimate team game. You know, it's not one guy. But yet when it comes to the Hall of Fame voting, they put so much emphasis on whether a guy has a ring and it's like well if if you're like you said a good guy on a great team you're going to get a ring whereas a willie anderson who was a great guy on a bad team has no shot whatsoever it just it it seems inherently unfair right well and 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 you're right because in baseball the numbers are the numbers rule right and they're easy to decipher no matter what team you played on joey Votto can win mvp almost you know on a bad 2017 reds team because of the numbers and they and but you don't have that in football especially not when you get into offensive line you know uh and and that's and that's all part of it anyway it's just my extra grind and and it's all fine and good but um that's that's what it is um let's growler bet Bengals growler bet uh from last week we have to point out uh you said the the bet was that uh how many people would have a at least one foot on stage during the Super Bowl halftime show, I said seventy-two, and you said twenty-four. I believe. Yes, twenty-six. I think it was twenty-six. Yeah. Uh, there were a hundred and thirty backup dancers alone. Okay, that's not even counting the like. There was like an orchestra at one point. There was like. <laughs> I mean, there were kids. There were kids. Yeah. I mean, there. I mean, it was there. There was there were like orb stages, and I was like, ah, am I going to count the orb stages? I was like, ah, maybe they don't even. That doesn't matter. I'm not even going to worry about it because. And I screenshotted the photo. I put it in Twitter. And I tweeted it out. At one point, there's there's just like people crawling on top of other people. Lay everyone laying on top of the stage with J Lo on a pole. I was just like. <laughs> It's absolutely insane. I did appreciate everybody that had listened to the pod uh, immediately tweeting out that I don't know what's going on uh, with the halftime show, but I do know that Paul Dater has won the growler bet because it was insanity. It was insane. It was not 24 people. Yeah, but the best part about losing a bet that bad is it was a gentleman. We didn't have anything on it. We there, It was just a gentleman's bet, so I'll I'll take my L and walk away and – not have anything to worry about, you know. But and because you you lo- you gave up your dignity long ago, Jay. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 adventures of Mullet Jay determined that losing your dignity is not really an issue anymore. It's kind of it's, it's proud <laughs> to lose your dignity. 
<laughs> exactly. In those days, you've recovered it since. So maybe this stings a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so maybe this stings a bit. I hope it does. I hope it does because that's all I've got is the sting. Uh, I, I certainly appreciated it. All right, so we'll be back next week. We'll be uh, we got the combine coming up at the end of the month, so um, basically three weeks from today as we record this on Tuesday. Um, we will be there. Until then, it's a lot of the same stuff, uh, a lot of background free agency work going on. You might see some guys get let go. Um, it, some players that get cut now are eligible to be signed, like Greg Olson was cut by Carolina. You'll start to see some stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, these next few weeks are fairly, fairly dead until you get to the combine. But we will be back and we will have plenty more for you. So we'll be back next week on Hear That Podcast Ground. I look forward to that. Until then, everybody have a good one and uh, we'll talk to you next time.